Well, good morning, Greenwich, and welcome to the Tuesday, March 9th edition of the Basement Academy. Uh, yesterday was a little bit of engagement with our thinking about the end and the future and the like. Uh, today we'll have a very different feel to it, which is why I've loved this, the question-answer uh, format over these last several weeks. Uh, just the questions have come from all over the place, and I, and I really have enjoyed that, and, and so so appreciative of all who've taken time to submit a very thoughtful uh, and engaging questions. Uh, so I hope I've been worthy of of your um, submissions and, and and your interest in this regard. Uh, the psalm today it's a little longer psalm than we normally read, Psalm 39, and I do want you to pay attention to a couple words that I'm going to read that will be part of one of the questions that we engage in today. So Psalm 39 is for the director of music for Jeduthun, or Jeduthun, a Psalm of David. I said, I will watch my ways and keep my tongue from sin. I will put a muzzle on my mouth as long as the wicked are in my presence. But when I was silent and still, not even saying anything good, my anguish increased. My heart grew hot within me, and as I meditated, the fire burned, then I spoke with my tongue. Show me, O Lord, my life's end and the number of my days. Let me know how fleeting is my life. You have made my days a mere handbreadth. The span of my years is as nothing before you. Each man's life is but a breath. Selah. Man is a mere phantom as he goes to and fro. He bustles about, but only in vain. He heaps up wealth, not knowing who will get it. But now, Lord, what do I look for? My hope is in you. Save me from all my transgressions. Do not make me the scorn of fools. I was silent. I would not open my mouth, for you are the one who has done this. Remove your scourge from me. I am overcome by the blow of your hand. You rebuke and discipline men for their sin. You consume their wealth like a moth. Each man is but a breath. Selah. Hear my prayer, O Lord. Listen to my cry for help. Be not deaf to my weeping, for I dwell with you as an alien, a stranger, as all my fathers were. Look away from me, that I may rejoice again before I depart and am no more. Psalm 39. Interesting psalm. <clears throat> so it has a little bit of a melancholic feel to it, right? There's this something's going on. I, I'm going to, I'm not going to say anything. Mm, I can't hold my tongue. <laughs> and, and so that happens to us sometimes. I'm just going to, I'm just going to hold my tongue. I'm not going to talk about what's happening in, in my life, in this world, in this situation. I'm just going to and then I speak. I must speak. I burn. The fire burns in me. And we do that, don't we? It's so hard to keep silent. 
but here it's in the context of God and eternity and whatever's happening. There's the sense of, okay, I'm being disciplined. I'm being scourged. I'm being, I'm being shaped by the potter's hand. He's squeezing this lump of clay, but this the sense of our life being but a breath. And after, so the same line, verse five and verse 11, each man's life is but a breath. And then there's this word, Selah. And so it occurs twice in this Psalm. And if you look in your own Psalter, you'll see that it's often italicized. It's set far off into the margin. It's not set right next to the text itself. We're going to talk about that. That's the first of our questions. And so there is this psalm of this prayer of lament, this cry of lament, but it's a song. This is for the director of music. Okay, and this plays into our understanding of Selah. You have made my dear days a mere handbreadth, which I think is like, they're just so short, right? A handbreadth. And so... It's this meditation upon the struggle of life and the brevity of life. So I commend Psalm 39 to you. Okay, two questions that kind of relate to one another. I kind of bundled them uh, together. I'm, I'm going to look forward to both of these. The first will be pretty brief. Um, <clears throat> I, I'll read the full. It says, thanks for your teachings and encouragement that you've passed on to your apprentices. We talk about being the apprentices of Jesus for praying the Psalms daily. So for that encouragement. We've been truly blessed this past year in deepening our faith and intimacy with Jesus. Our two questions are about the word Selah that is used throughout the Psalter. First question, what is its meaning? Second, is there a reason you don't read it when it appears? So I have not been reading the word. Now, I did here because I wanted to illustrate with the, uh, with the question here. Great question. And... Um, I hope this is a worthy answer. Selah is an untranslated Hebrew word. Now, it, it all we do is we take it from the Hebrew alphabet, the Hebrew language, and we transliterate it. We don't translate it, we transliterate it. The sounds that if you were to read it in Hebrew, Selah, we then try to spell it in English as closely to that as we can. Some say Selah. I tend to say Selah, okay? Um, so it's an untranslated word similar to the word hallelujah. So we think of hallelujah as just a good old English word. Hallelujah is straight Hebrew. Hallelujah, that's praise ye, as it were. The you at the end is the plural. So hallel, praise. Hallelujah is short for Yahweh. Hallelujah, praise ye the Lord, okay? Or praise you, all y'all praise the Lord is kind of what it what it's saying. So Selah is like that, okay? It's an untranslated Hebrew word. 39 of our Psalms include the word Selah. There's 71 occurrences in those 39 Psalms. Two of them are in this Psalm, okay? The Bible scholars aren't 100% sure, but they're general consensus, the general thinking is that it's a musical notation. The Psalms were, many of them, set to music. This is really the hymnal for uh, the, the Israelites, that they would learn to 
sing their prayers, which is kind of what our hymns are. Hymns are sung prayers, okay? And so um, it's generally thought to be a musical notation, perhaps indicating a pause or a rest. Now, if you've ever, I don't read music. I, I know what some of the symbols are and kind of hack my way through the, the notes and, and figure them out on the staff, but I've just not you know, been disciplined enough to, to learn how to read music. But I know what some of the symbols are, like the coda, you return back to the beginning. And so it's, so the thinking is that Selah is musical notation. With that, it also is thought to mean pause. It's like a rest, reflect. And it's interesting that in this psalm, both times Selah occurs, it's after this phrase, each man's life is but a breath. Selah. Consider that. Pause. Linger on that, not just that musical note. Linger on that thought. Linger on that reality. Our lives are but a breath. They're, they're just passing. They're fleeting. Let me know how fleeting are my days, uh, the psalmist said earlier. Um, so that's what it means, okay? To the degree that we understand that, and, and this is the general consensus of the, the, the scholarly community, that it's musical notation indicating a pause and a rest to reflect upon what has just been said or sung. The reason I don't read it is it's just out of bad habit. Knowing that it means that, I, I just have kind of... I don't see it anymore, and it's it's unfortunate. Like the magazines lying on my floor in my bedroom, <laughs> you know, my my golf digest and my Christianity today. I just I stopped seeing them after a while, and I've stopped seeing Selah. And so I'm so thankful for the question. Very very helpful for the question. Um, there's no reason I should not read them because it is in the text. And as I did, I paused a little bit in the reading here and I, it seemed appropriate. So thank you, uh, questioner. I will um, seek to be faithful to those Psalms that I read as part of the Basement Academy to, to pause with Selah. So I know, I know there's no rebuke that, that you're intending. It's more a gentle question that, that leads to a wonderful um, opportunity to, uh, to, to greater faithfulness. So that's, that's Psalms, that's Selah. Great, thank you. Okay, second question really has to do, it says, could you please talk about the changes in worship services and styles with regard to music? Now, not so much at Greenwich, because I don't think we've changed, um, but traditional hymns versus praise music, or traditional hymns or praise music, not necessarily versus. Types of praise music, guitars or rock bands. Should we hold to the tradition? Should we change the music to attract more people? Is attracting more people the reason for the change? What about churches that have both types of services? Is there a right or a wrong? And most importantly, what do I, that is, what do you, Don Meeks, what do I say about all the criticism each group has for the other? What about pastors that preach against the evils of the other side? Fantastic question. Fantastic question. Again, don't know who, who, who sent this one, but thank you. Okay, let me, got maybe, you know, 15 minutes or so uh, to try to unpack this. Hope I can do it uh, justice. 
So I want to start back a, a, a step or two to get a little perspective. I don't want to start with the music right away. I want to step back and say that the gospel, God's word, the truth, the gospel, the story that we uh, embrace here, the gospel is always incarnational. It is enculturated. Incarnational, that is word made flesh. Okay, so Jesus is the word made flesh. So there's always an incarnational reality. There's an enculturated reality. And here, here's what I mean by that. It, we always, the gospel always comes in particular language with particular traditions and customs attached to it. When the church gathers, there are things they do, but the things they do are shaped by the where they live and the when they live. Okay, that's what I mean by enculturated. Okay, so our Old Testament is written in Hebrew and a few portions in Aramaic. We don't read in Hebrew and Aramaic. I read the Bible in English. I'm speaking to you in English because that's the language of our culture. The New Testament was written in Greek or Koine or common Greek. It's not, it's not the high classic Greek. It's Koine. It's common. It not, not quite slang, but it's, it's colloquial. Okay. Um, the Bible has been translated into Latin. Uh, our Roman Catholic friends often, for, for you know, centuries, celebrated the Mass in Latin. Okay, We, in our country, worship primarily in English, but there are immigrant, and, and, um, uh, there are immigrant fellowships that, that, that gather in the United States, but they gather in their own language. So there might be an Hispanic, there might be a Ghanaian, a uh, Cameroonian, um, where, where there, it makes sense for that group to gather and speak their native tongue, they do so. Okay. So that's what I mean by the gospel is incarnational. It's enculturated. Okay. Let's take it a step further. When we gather for worship, we similarly have incarnational and enculturated realities. So we don't celebrate with a pita bread, as it were, like a flat bread, like Jesus would have probably initially, if it's that Passover meal, that the bread hasn't risen because that was part of it. You, you, they, they had to leave in haste. So, But we thank you, Susan Boyd, for your wonderful communion bread that we've been able to enjoy again. And so thank you. But we have bread common to our area we use grape juice as opposed to wine, okay? So that's what I mean. There are particular forms and customs and practices that particular church communities embrace, okay? When we baptize, we baptize with water common to the area. We don't baptize. We don't have to go scoop water from the Jordan. Some people might think that we ought to do that, but we baptize with water common to our location. Um, churches have met in any any number of locations. The early church met in homes. Persecuted churches have met in the catacombs and underground and in secret and in hiding. There are churches that meet in theaters, okay? Theater church, National Community Church. Um, there are churches that meet in cathedrals, just enormous soaring cathedrals. Some churches meet in storefronts. Some meet in red brick buildings with white steeples surrounded by a cemetery and oak trees and dogwoods and azaleas that look like it came right out of a Norman Rockwell painting. Churches like Greenwich, okay? So churches meet in schools. Churches meet all over the place, but they meet 
in a certain culture. They speak a certain language. They use a certain translation of the Bible. And so then when they gather to sing, singing, music is incarnational. It is enculturated. And so uh, let me read just a little bit from Psalm 150, okay? Psalm 150, the last of the Psalms. Praise the Lord. Praise God in his sanctuary. Praise him in his mighty heavens. Praise him for his acts of power. Praise him for his surpassing greatness. Praise him with the sounding of the trumpet. Praise him with the harp and the lyre. Praise him with tambourine and, and with dancing. Praise him with the strings and flute. Praise him with the clash of cymbals. Praise him with resounding cymbals. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. So when we sing, how come we don't sing with trumpets and clashing cymbals and harps and lyres and, and the like? Flutes, I mean, we, we've just been given specific instruction in Scripture which instruments are to accompany our singing, our, our joyful gathering. I did not read praise him with the electric guitar. I did not read, you know, praise him with the banging of drums. I did not read, praise him with the pipe organ. So, huh, okay. Let's think about this a little bit. So instruments that accompany worship are common to the culture of the gathered community. So if it's an African immigrant fellowship, such as we have in our own presbytery, there might be a certain type of drum that would accompany worship or other instruments that are common to that, that native land. But now that they're in the United States, they retain some of those cultural expressions, though they might also play the piano and possibly the organ. Um, I hope this makes sense. And so the instruments that accompany the singing congregation are to be used to support the singing, to enhance the singing, not to detract from, not to make, make it difficult for. So the question is, do the instruments involved in worship support and enhance the congregational singing? Organs and pianos are relatively late developments in the history of instruments, okay? The piano, just did a little poking around, roughly 1700, okay? There are versions of the organ, the water organ, as I read, that, that show up back in the third century BC, but the pipe organ, as we kind of know it, is really 14th, 15th century, and then it, it kind of evolves from there. Our pipe organ is actually a digital organ that has many, it's a computer, okay? It's a computer hooked to speakers. Um, it just doesn't seem that way. It sounds like a pipe organ or, or something else. Okay, all of that is to say that whatever singing a congregation engages in, it is to be for the purposes of supporting an optimal that's probably not the right word. It is to support the, the worship 
of God by enabling the people of God to focus their attention, to be able to follow the cadence, the rhythm, the meter of the song, be it a contemporary song, be it a hymn, okay? So the instruments need to be uh, played in such a manner to enhance the singing so people can maybe hear the melody. And there, if there's some harmony that's played, because often with instrumentation uh, and a musical score, there's the melody that's there, but also there's some, some harmonic tones that those who know how to sing the harmony parts can do that, okay? And, and so um, in, the, in the book of Colossians, <clears throat> uh, I just wanna read this one little portion. Colossians 3:16 let the uh, 3:15 let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts since as members of one body you were called to peace and be thankful so let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts okay so be 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 at peace let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom so as we gather for instruction let the word abide in you and so i think we attend to that and as you sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with gratitude in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Wise counsel from Colossians chapter 3. Let peace rule, let the word of God abide. Whatever you do, do it all in the name of, the, of, of Jesus to the glory of God the Father as you sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Three, the psalms, so, so there are some churches that think we're only supposed to sing psalms without instruments, some psalms with instruments. Hymns, the, the, the history of hymnody is actually laden with controversy because uh, when, when they began to write hymns based on passages of scripture, it was a paraphrase. It was often a paraphrase, like joy to the world. I, I mentioned yesterday in Psalm 98, that's the Psalm that sits behind our hymn, joy to the world. Joy to the world is a paraphrase of Psalm 98. It's not a word for word setting to, the, to, to music. And there are people that criticized certain eras of hymn writers because they were tampering with the word of God. That was unfaithful. Let the word of God stand. Just sing your psalms and that's it. Why do you want to mess with the word of God? You are, it's almost like a sacrilege to do that. And so hymns, there have been other hymns that have been set to music that is common and familiar to the day. I won't say like row, row, row your boat, you know, but it would be like hearing, um, hearing the, uh, a, a hymn to a different tune, and there's controversy with that. So, for instance, Amazing Grace can be sung to the tune of Gilligan's Island. Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. Blind, but now I see. Okay, some of you are like laughing your heads off now, I hope. Okay. I don't anticipate we'll be doing that in church anytime soon. But you can imagine if I were to bring that in and say, okay, Margaret strikes up Gilligan's Island and we start singing Amazing Grace, people are going to go, that's sacrilege. You can't sing Amazing Grace to Gilligan's Island. To which I would say, why not? Well, because it can only be sung to this tune. Says who? 
So where we start to get into the controversy, where this question starts to, to move us is people get really tied to their culture, their enculturated expression of worship, a certain form of bread, a certain location of pew, a certain kind of instrument, guitar or organ, a certain kind of song, hymn or contemporary uh, music, a certain tune that is familiar to us. Or so, so the question would be, if, if I could set a, a text that we don't know how to sing, that the, t- the tune is very clunky, to a tune that is familiar to us, which would be better? Would it be better not to sing the hymn or to sing it poorly because it's, it's, it's in an acculturated expression of ways that we don't sing anymore? And so when I did my sabbatical project back in 2010, I took seven hymns from an old 1895 Presbyterian hymnal, hymns that to my experience, there I've never heard these hymns. The text was beautiful, moving, compelling, faithful, biblically, theologically. But I, I went and had Mary play them for me on the piano. And it's like, oh, they're clunkers. The tunes are a total clunk fest. So I went, at a, at the church granted me a, a, an eight, nine week sabbatical. And I wrote new music to those tunes. So the song from Sunday, bread of the world in mercy broken, wine of the soul in mercy shed. I wrote that tune. I'm not trying to brag. I'm just, but I, I don't, I don't lift that up. I don't publicize that. We don't list it in the bulletin, but I wrote that tune. I did not write the words. Believe it or not, I found that that was actually in our hymnal. I didn't realize it, but it's a total clunk fest of a tune. It's not singable. And so I wrote a tune that in our 2000, I was written in 2010, 2010 was singable and the quiet, I mean, the, the, the congregation can now sing it. At the Lamb's high feast, we sing praise to our victorious King. I wrote that tune and we sing that, you know, a couple, three, four times a year. Uh, I just told my wife, I said, I want that sung at my funeral. <laughs> I love that hymn. The text is so powerful, but the the melody was a total clunker for my experience, okay? And I, I feel like I've rescued some hymns and brought them back forward. And so that's what I mean. Now, have I sinned in doing so? Possibly in the eyes of some, <laughs> you know, that, that it's inappropriate, what ends up happening is we get tied to cultural forms. We get tied to the organ. We get tied to the choir. We get tied to a high classical expression, okay? Or others get tied to guitars and drums or rock band, you know, playing, um, you know, with electric uh, guitar and bass and piano with lots of vocalists. I-, I don't quarrel with any of those expressions, okay? I celebrate that God's praises are being sung. Now, I do have a bone to pick. That summer of sabbatical, we didn't worship at Greenwich and we attended several other churches in the area and many of them did not sing any hymns at all and many of them didn't sing any songs I recognized or our family recognized and many of the songs they sang were completely unsingable. 
They were really being performed. They had cadences, they had rhythms, they had meter, they had punctuations and stops. They had melodies that went, the, the range was such that no human person could, who didn't know the song walking in like ourselves, like the Meeks family, could participate. And so I would say instruments and, and, and melody are to support the human voice to make praise of God, not to be sung at, but to enable us to sing. So I came away as I was writing those hymn, those new tunes that summer, I was with a deep conviction that whatever tune I write has to be singable. Some, I, I did a little better, in, in my opinion, than, I, than on other songs, okay? So some of them you know, some of them you don't because they're a little harder, you know, I didn't maybe succeed. Okay, so all that being said, um, it's recognizing that we have uh, maybe elevated our own preferences for an enculturated form over the praise of God, over the, the, the well-being of the community. Now, what it is, is we live in a church in America, there's an older population that, that learned hymns and songs out of a different tradition, okay? The sacred choral tradition and hymns uh, with pipe organs and pianos, okay? And there's a younger generation that now knows um, not the organ. You know, you don't listen to the organ on the radio unless you're listening to the classical radio. And so most of our younger families and the, the children and the students, they're all gonna be listening to music that doesn't sound like church music. Or let's put it this way, church music doesn't come across anywhere else. And so we, the, the questioner asks us several questions that I won't, won't get at all of them. Um, we might be doing a disservice to some of our younger families. When we dropped, when we built our new building, we dropped the 930 service that did sing a lot of our contemporary hymns. It was all singable stuff. I would play the guitar. We had others who would play, you know, percussive instruments. Mary would play the piano and others would. And so it was kind of an unplugged experience. We didn't plug guitars in or anything, but it was, it was, it was joyful. It was appropriate. Um, it was tasteful. Um, and, but not everybody knows those songs just the same way not everybody knows the hymns. And so um, I, I think there's the, the question does raise some significance for a church like Greenwich that is aging a little bit. And, and, and so how it's not that we will change the music to attract people. It, we will, we will sing songs in such a manner to enhance the worship of God. Thankfully, Greenwich has never had a fight over this. In my 20 years, you know, I played the guitar. Maybe it's because I'm playing the guitar that folks don't feel like they can criticize. I, you know, I, I understand that some may not enjoy it, and I respect that, which is why we don't do it all the time. But I also recognize there are folks who say, please do that again. <laughs> Keep that, that, that praise music, the contemporary feel um, and it is appropriate to do so. And so I would anticipate even out of this question, I might, you know, work back to our elders and others and, and explore ways in which we can continue to broaden our expression of praise to enable the most people at Greenwich to engage uh, in this work. Uh, the last question, what about pastors who preach against the evils of the other side? I wish they wouldn't do that. I don't think there's wisdom there. How could we possibly be upset 
when somebody wants to praise God in the language, the musical language, uh, that is the, the melody and harmony and instrumentation that, that is their heart language, okay? Why would I be upset at a young person who wanted to uh, write music or sing music that, that has nothing to do with organs and choirs, and, but they want to express their praise to God with guitar or keyboard or some other contemporary instrument. Why would I scold that young person or older person? Similarly, why would I scold someone who wanted to, you know, sing How Great Thou Art with a soaring uh, organ? <laughs> Uh, why, why would we scold anybody who wants to give their worship and praise to God? So, so I'm disappointed in my colleagues who do speak against these things. And I just wish they wouldn't because the scripture clearly guides us. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Let the word of God abide in you richly. Whatever you do, do it in the name of Jesus to the glory of the Father and, do, and sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. And that's all the, the permission I need to expand our, our musical repertoire and vocabulary. Okay. I hope this is helpful. Uh, thanks to these questioners. And let's go ahead and close with prayer. Gracious God, thank you for your mercies um, that are revealed in so many ways through these psalms, uh, through the hymns, through the spiritual songs. And thank you for the gift of, of song. Whether we can sing well and enjoy it or not, uh, there's something in the melody, in the harmony, in the text, uh, in the instrumentation, in the orchestration that moves us. You've made us to be moved by music. And so we thank you and pray that at Greenwich you would deepen and broaden our musical repertoire, expand our ability, uh, our, our ability to speak uh, increasing music languages, to, to, to speak to and allow the hearts of God's people to be lifted high to you. And we pray for sister churches uh, in our community that may be struggling in this very area. We pray that they would be led into great freedom as we pray for our own freedom in worship. And so, Lord, hear us as we offer our prayer, united in Jesus, who taught us to pray together, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come and thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. May the God who made the angels to sing <laughs> and us to sing with the angels, may that God watch over us, keep us, bless us this day and forevermore. Amen.